Okay, great. Over the summer, we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer together. Jesus's, this is Jesus' answer to the disciples' request, Lord, teach us to pray. And I do hope that this series has more been, have been more than just a kind of a, a fun, entertaining uh, kind of break in the summer. Um, I pray that you are now better able to answer that question for yourself. Lord, teach me how to pray. Because we all struggle with prayer. We, we do well for a few minutes, we get really excited, and then, then we just seem to strangely run out of words. In any other context in life, we never seem to run out of words. But in prayer, we seem to struggle more. We find it so hard. And if we look at the context of this passage, the context is, uh, is king, in this, in, in, as in all things. Jesus is talking about spiritual disciplines like prayer and giving and fasting and acts of kindness. And I know we don't like that phrase, spiritual disciplines, because it implies us having to do something that we don't want to do. But let's not forget that the path of discipleship, either way to follow Jesus, is through acts like this. Because if we say that we are a Christ follower and we never serve, that just doesn't make sense because Jesus served all the time. And if we say that we, we love, love Jesus but then don't pray, it's a bit like me saying I love Louise but I never talk to her. And if we don't give or pray or serve or worship, then we're not really following Jesus because Jesus did all of those things himself. He gave everything. He prayed a lot. He served at the lowest level and he worshipped the Father. So when we talk about spiritual disciplines, let's not think, oh no, Ben's going to make me do something I don't want to do. Or he's trying to get me to do things I want. We should think instead, great, this is how we get to copy Jesus. This is how we get to live our lives like him who was the best man, who was actually the best Christian who ever lived. And it is hard, and because it's a spiritual discipline, it will always be hard, but it is still something worth us pursuing and getting better at because it's part and parcel of us following Christ. You know, when Jesus was speaking these words, he was speaking in, in an environment where religion was the most honoured thing. You know, so when the Pharisees fasted, they, um, they made sure they looked awful so that everyone knew that they were really religious and they fasted. So their beard would have been all crazy and their hair would have just been all over the place. So everyone knew that they were fasting. And they literally, when they prayed, they stopped traffic. They did it in the middle of the street. They stopped everyone, looked up to heaven and shouted out their prayers. Everyone knew how religious they were. When they gave, they made a great show of it and big bags of money, which probably were worth nothing to them anyway. And, but that isn't our problem today. Our problem isn't that we like to do religious things so that people look, that we look good before people. Our problem is just that we don't do them. It's not that Jesus, like Jesus was saying to the guys at the time, you know, you do them with the wrong heart. You do it to get the, to get the, the honor from man. We just don't do them anymore. We see spiritual disciplines and all the things that Jesus is talking about, like prayer, as kind of optional extras for those who, you know, for the really keen ones. Or for those who haven't got a busy lifestyle. Those, those without young kids. God, I just, you have to give up on those then. You know, sometimes actually, I'm sure some Christians can never remember the last time they gathered to pray with other believers. Some believers gave up giving financially years ago. You know, they're waiting for God to sort out their finances and then they'll start giving. In fact, actually, God says, you start giving and I will sort out your finances that way around. And spiritual disciplines like prayer isn't easy, but they are an essential part of the Christ follower's life. And this is why we spent six weeks looking at this prayer. 
So I do hope you enjoyed it. I do hope you had fun as we looked at these things six times uh, over the last six sermons. But more than that, I hope that you feel challenged and inspired, even perhaps convicted about your own prayer life. But also I pray that you feel better equipped to use this power source of prayer. Do you know spiritual disciplines, they are power sources for the believer. That's all they are. But I hope that you feel better equipped to use them in your daily routines. Let's remind ourselves of the passage we've been looking at in Matthew 6. Matthew 6, verse 9 to 13, it will come up on the board. This then, Jesus talking, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Later manuscripts, it says, have added that very familiar phrase, for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I get very comforted by that last bit. Because, you know, it's that people didn't feel able to pray without a nice flourish and the word amen at the end. It's nice to see that tradition isn't a recent thing. But with today, with the summer holidays drawing to an end, we've now we've come to the final section of the prayer. So Jesus began with those three first parts, talking about God's name being honoured, his rule and reign being advanced, and his will to be done. The next half of the prayer was all about stuff, the petitions that we are praying for ourselves. So we pray for our daily bread. We pray for the essentials for life. We pray for our forgiveness. And then we come to our final request. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And within these three final petitions, you have, you have, us, got, you have us asking God to meet our three basic requirements. We begin with our physical needs, not just daily bread, but all the things we need to live. We then ask for our forgiveness, which is a daily need for us to restore our relate to continue our relationship with the father and then lastly our need for guidance and protection we might call them the material the moral and the spiritual needs every human being has what we need to live what we need to enjoy fellowship with god through forgiveness and then staying on the right track as believers and this morning i want to keep things very simple i want to read it which i've done and then explain it a bit explain what it means, and then try and apply it for our lives today. Hebrews 4.12 describes scripture as being living and active, which means that it's not just worth just a simple glance over and a quick read. Actually, it's worth meditating on and trying to work out what that means for our lives. It also means it can be applied to today as well. Let's consider these two statements separately for a moment. So before we get to the protection prayer, we begin with a prayer for guidance. Lead us not into temptation. Now, some Christians, and I'm sure you're not one of them, love this phrase. Because it seems to agree with the wrong theology. And it therefore becomes a great excuse for continuing to do all the sinful things that we like to do. Because there you have it, don't you? God tempts me. If we're praying God leads us not into temptation, surely God is saying he's presenting temptation before me. So, of course, he shouldn't complain when I give in to that temptation. Well, he put it there in the first place. Many Christians believe what is a lie. God presents me with temptation. Maybe I'll give in a little bit. You know, well, he doesn't mind. They're just little sins. I'll go back to forgiveness. He can show his grace and his mercy and his wonder and his love by forgiving me time and time again. 
Now, we, don't, we would never say that out loud, would we? But often we do live that way. We keep sinning. It's okay. I can just keep coming back to God for lovely grace and lovely forgiveness. I don't go to God with repentance, to a holy God with fear and trembling. Because I know I can't control my lust, my anger, my pride. I'll just withdraw another kind of deposit of grace from the big bank on Sunday mornings. But Paul's response to that kind of idea is, guys, we died to sin. Why would we ever think that way? Why would we ever live that way? Why do we keep feeding this zombie of a dead body that we have died to? Why would we do it? So surely Jesus isn't saying, God, stop leading me into tempting situations, as it seems like he might be saying. So what does he mean? Well, it's very important when you get to situations like this, when you read in Scripture something that is quite unclear or seems to imply something that we struggle with, you compare it with other scriptures on the same subject that are more clear. So I don't know how you might do this at home, you know, biblegateway.com, you just type in, you know, if you're thinking about temptation, you type in the word tempt and see all the other references in the Bible to it. And were you to do that, the top one on the list would be James 1.13, where it says, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. You know, if Jesus' words are a little unclear, this one is very clear. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Who presents temptation? Is it God? No. Is it Satan? Well, I'm not really sure it is. You know, he needed to do it in the garden. I'm not sure he needs to be involved in much temptation in these days. Is it the world? Perhaps. What's James saying? The primary source of temptation is ourselves. It comes from us. So what is God's part in temptation? Well, not only did he set us free from slavery to that temptation that leads to sin and then to death, but also the Bible promises that he has presented a way out of temptation for, without giving into it. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Again, if you typed in tempt, temptation or tempt on any kind of Bible searching, this is what it will give you. When you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. What's God's part in temptation? He is to offer the giant exit sign when temptation comes. God doesn't tempt us, but he has, been, he has promised in his word and on his word that whenever we face temptation, there will be a way out of it. And so that excuse, I couldn't help myself, is not a valid excuse for the believer. It calls God a liar. When we are tempted, we must look for the exit, which may literally be a door. For Joseph, he ran out of the door from Potiphar's wife. Your exit sign may be a remote to change channel. I was reading PJ Smythe's new book, actually, the guy who was um, kind of speaking at West Point. He says, our eyelids are great exits for us. Close your eyes when that thing comes up. It may be a pure thought to replace a wrong thought. It may be the off switch on your computer. It may be a friend or another member of the church who is probably also struggling in that same way who can pray with you and support you. There is always an exit opportunity to temptation. God has promised it. And so when we give in to temptation, we can never say, God, I couldn't help myself or it was therefore or it was her fault. 
We have to admit, there was a way out. I chose not to take it. I was too tired. I was too lazy to look properly for that exit sign. So let's get back to the Lord's Prayer. What does Jesus mean when he tells us to pray to the Father, lead us not into temptation? Well, this is how personally I understand it. I see it as a request from God, for God, change my heart. Make me want the things that you want. You know, I see it like that, just like that prayer of David in Psalm 139. Lead me in the way everlasting. Rather than, God, avoid, help me to avoid that path of temptation or that path of temptation, help me choose the right path. To me, this prayer is all about, God, change my heart. Did you know that your heart desires the things it believes will bring you the most happiness? Do you get that? Your heart desires the things it believes will bring you the most happiness. Your heart goes after the things it thinks will make you happy. Or most happy. Every act that you do is done under the belief that doing it will result in more pleasure than not doing it. Do you realize that's how the heart works? That's what the Bible means by the heart. And conversely, every act that you don't do is done under the assumption that not doing it will bring you more happiness than doing it. Do you understand? That's what the Bible says about the heart. So, for example, I go for runs in the morning. I don't like going for runs in the morning. In fact, I very rarely enjoy going for runs in the morning. But I do it because I know there is a greater happiness from me being fit than from me being fat. Happiness to come. So my heart tells me it's something I should do. I endure long, hot car journeys with fractious kids and often a fractious dad, if I'm being honest, because I'm anticipating a greater happiness that comes from a holiday with my family. My heart tells me it is worth doing that because there is a greater happiness to come. And our heart drives our behavior based on what it thinks will make us happiest. Your heart is an addict for happiness. It is always looking for its next fix. This is why Paul wrote in Romans 1 when he talked about the depravity of man. He said that God gave them over to the desires of their heart. In the end, God said, okay, you know, I'm going to stop pricking your conscience. I'm going to stop sending prophets. You can just do the things that you want. your heart is telling you you want to do. So... This prayer isn't about God change my circumstances so that temptation doesn't come my way. It is God change my heart so that those temptations I will come across will mean nothing to me. Do you get the difference? It's not God change my circumstances so that there won't be any temptation in front of me. It is God change my heart so that when I face temptation, they will mean nothing to me. Change my heart so that the apparent pleasure they may bring me will seem like nothing compared to the joy of obeying you and living my life as you want me to. Lead me not to desire that temptation. Lead me to desire the things of you. Change my heart so that it won't lead me into temptation, but instead teach and train my heart so that I find my greatest joy and pleasure in you alone, Lord Jesus, not in sin. You know, I've often wondered why Jesus, how Jesus coped with temptation. I don't know about you, but maybe you don't do this. Maybe I, I just think these through in my mind. Um, you know, as a young man, he would have faced very similar temptations to the temptations that I know I face. You can imagine him being tempted, you know, with, with lustful thoughts. Let's face it, some women were throwing themselves at Jesus. Yeah, and, and I don't get that, I'm sorry, you know. Um, 
like that woman who came and wept and wiped his feet with her hair and just, just, it sounds like an amazing moment. Or that adulterous woman who Jesus saves from execution. Look, to be honest, she's done it before. She's not going to be worried about perhaps doing it again. I don't know. All the, all the kind of temptations, temptation to lie so that the crowd would stay with him. Maybe he faced envy as he passed by all those amazing Roman palaces that he knew could have been his if he changed his message. Or the, the desire to be jealous or to angry. You know, no one has faced temptation like Jesus himself. In fact, he faced greater temptation than anyone else because he never gave into it. Most of us get tempted, we resist for a little bit, maybe for a degree or for a time, and then often we give in when temptation gets too strong. None of us have ever faced the full weight of temptation because we sinned long ago, even before sin, the temptation became its greatest enticement. So how did Jesus do it? Was it just self-control? Was it just self-control? When that beautiful Nazareth girl walked past the carpentry shop again, did Jesus just screw up his eyes and try to think of temple things and religious things to get anything but that girl? When his mother told him to tidy his room again, did he, I'm only doing this to obey, I'm only only doing this because I'm perfect and you're not. Is, Is that how he did it? No. Jesus saw a greater joy to be had by obeying the Father's will. Jesus' heart told him every time there was a greater happiness that would come his way if he didn't give in to temptation. His heart convinced him that the greatest joy would come if he always chose the godly way of life. And for me, you know, lead me not into temptation. It's not a downward view. God, help me, give me strength to endure one more day. It is an upward look. It is, God, give me a vision of your goodness and the joy that comes to those who overcome in you. Teach my heart that there is a true and lasting joy and peace and happiness that comes by me doing your will and not giving in to temptation. It's like the psalmist writes writes in Psalm 51, create in me a new heart. That's what I see when I read, lead me not into temptation. Renew the very definition of happiness in my innermost being. You know, when I'm, as I was just getting into this subject, really, it again reminded me of the gospel that has saved us. You know, the gospel tells us that we are sinful, that we were slaves to temptation and sin. It wasn't just that we tried hard, but then it finally gave in. We rushed into sin. You know, we didn't need sin to come and entice us like some cunning serpent. Did God really say, no, no, he's way behind us. You know, we, we freely gave ourselves to sin. And even when we became aware of a holy God, and we were still incapable of resisting temptation because our hearts still led us into sin. Perhaps some of you here aren't a believer. Maybe because you're here, you are aware that there is a holy God out there. But you're still a slave to your sinful nature. And it isn't just a case of trying harder and resisting better. You need a transforming work of God's spirit on you. You need to be literally born again with a new heart. You need to see the joy that comes from surrendering everything to Jesus Christ to make him not just your advisor, but your Lord and King. Wonderfully, that transforming work is just a prayer away. We can stop striving and start believing. But for those of us who have already given our lives to Christ, the gospel still has work to do on us and our hearts because we still need a transforming work. 
We need to remind ourselves that salvation isn't just a moment, it is a moment and a process. So although when we give our lives to Christ, in that moment we are literally justified. It's as if I never sinned before God. We are given the righteous status of Christ. There is still what is called a sanctification work, a literally becoming holy, becoming like God work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. It would be comical if it wasn't so tragic to believe that when I gave my life to Christ, suddenly I would be immune to temptation. It's like the husband who wakes up the day after he gets married and imagines that it's somehow surprised that all the women aren't suddenly nauseatingly ugly around him. Suddenly I thought my mind would change because I committed my life to this woman. I imagined everyone else would just be hideously formed to me. No, we still need a transforming work of his spirit on our life to help us say no to ungodliness. And he does it as he renews our mind and he transforms our hearts. So even if you have committed your life to Christ, you still need to pray this prayer, God, change my heart. And I think this is why Jesus included it in his model prayer. So maybe you're at work and maybe you're tempted to cheat with the expenses or the timesheet. No, God, change my heart to see the greater joy of working as for you and building your kingdom, which is a kingdom of righteousness and truth and justice. I may end up with more money at the end of it, but actually my satisfaction and happiness will be in you. Imagine you're tempted to, to lust after another person, maybe that guy or that girl at the office who you know, seems to take a little shine into you and is always very kind of touchy-feely. You know, I've heard husbands say that um, their response to situations like that is, why have a takeaway burger when there's a roast dinner at home? Have you ever heard, have you heard someone say that? Nice sentiment... Not always that helpful, if I'm being honest. Sometimes the burger's well presented, and sometimes the roast dinner is a little bit overdone. Yeah, maybe a bit gristly sometimes as well. I'm speaking hypothetically, of course. No, God, rather change my heart so that my marriage will demonstrate the beauty of Jesus' relationship with the church and the joy that brings. God, give me the joy and the happiness of a lifelong commitment and fidelity of celebrating 25 years, of celebrating 50 years of living together as husband and wife. Change my heart so that I treat my wife with such love and dignity that Christ showed to us, his bride, even when we were least deserving of it. Change my heart so it goes after the long-term happiness and not momentary satisfaction that leads to a life of regret. Maybe you're tempted, maybe another temptation that comes away, maybe not to bother with, you know, church activities, events, or spiritual disciplines. Lord, change my heart so I see a greater joy that comes through deeper fellowship with your spirit and with your body. Teach me that a greater joy is available even than the, the British dream that we have of my sofa, my TV, and my bottle of wine. Show me that there is something greater and more joyful than even that epitome of pleasure. A Sunday morning lion. Lead me not into temptation. Change me, Lord. Change my heart. Change my passions. Change my desires. Change my ambitions. So that temptation doesn't even get a look in. Ask God for an eternal... If, you know, Maybe you can't deal with an eternal perspective. Ask for a lifelong perspective. Let me see myself in 30, 40, 50, 60 years celebrating a life well lived... A marriage that has been honoured. A life of kingdom activities rather than a life of regrets, of missed opportunities because I gave into temptation. I don't know if anyone has 
has heard what's called the multiverse theory, kind of linked in with what I'm, what I'm talking about here. Um, multiverse theory was invented by scientists, um, atheistic scientists, they don't believe in God, and they, they need to explain how the universal contents, things like gravity, are so perfectly designed, sorry, I mean evolved, um, to enable life, especially human life, to flourish. And so their understanding of how the universe came about was, is called this multiverse theory. And the multiverse theory says that, um, that there are billions, trillions of universes and uh, where the universal constants are slightly different. And so pity to all those non-existent humans on non-existent worlds who didn't catch the one in a quintillion break that we did to have the universe that came out like we see. Now, obviously, I don't agree with the theory... It denies a creator, first of all, and it, or even worse, it says that the creator could only create by trial and error, which is obviously not true. But while I don't agree with the theory, I like the idea of it. I like the idea that there are multiple, perhaps sometimes minute decisions that we make that build to this whole new existence for us. And that every decision that we make will take us in a slightly different direction, either more Godward or less Godward. And therefore has an impact on our life. And so every decision to choose God's way or my way is important because it builds to a life well lived. And so we need to picture ourselves in the future. Think about the things that we would like to be enjoying. Maybe our kids worshipping. That was a real passion of mine for years. I want to see my kids worshipping Jesus with me. Maybe you want to see yourself in a few years time with friends and family standing with you in church and glorifying God. Maybe you want to be celebrating 25, 40, 50 years of a solid marriage. Maybe you want to enjoy retirement where there's no kind of things you're missing out on, things that you wish you'd done. Maybe as well you're looking ahead to that well done, good and faithful servant welcome. God, change my heart so that every decision I make will build to that future rather than jeopardize or destroy it. Lead me not into temptation isn't just about trying harder. It is the heart cry of someone who has tried but has failed and who knows that of themselves they cannot resist temptation. It is the cry, God, lift my eyes to something else, something glorious, the things that are mine in Christ. Pray it out in your days. Every day, try it. Pray it out. God, change my heart today. Try and apply these things to your life. Give yourself to this prayer every day. Must continue. Jesus continues the prayer. Deliver us from evil. Some versions say evil one. Some say evil itself. The Greek word is what's called genitive, which means it's like possessed. Not as in like possessed as in demon possessed, but in possessed as in to be owned. So it can either be the evil of this world or it can be the evil one. Bible translators don't really know exactly what we meant. But in either case, there's the same intent. You know, praying protection from the evil one or the evil he wants to do to me. Sounds pretty much like the same prayer to me anyway. But do we pray this much? I, you know, I, really, I don't think we do anymore. There are Christians who pray this much more. Places like Nigeria, in the Middle East, in China, in North Korea. I bet they pray this prayer a lot. God, deliver me from evil. Rescue me. Liberate me. And yet Jesus says we should pray this every day. Always, in fact, he says. We should pray this for ourselves. For our children, for our wives and husbands, our family, our friends, our church. You know, in, this, in the culture that we live in, we are taught that the material is all that there is. 
Our Western culture denies the, that there is anything beyond the physical, the material, or the physical, the material, any of the things that we can touch, things that we can see, the rational, as we call it. But the Bible teaches that there is a constant battle going on. It's like that great quote in that great film, Universal Suspects. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Don't fall for that trick. And because Jesus doesn't want us to be ignorant of the presence of evil, he puts in his model prayer for his disciples. But he doesn't just remind us, guys, there's a battle going on. He also teaches us the source of our victory over that evil is our Father in heaven. It doesn't come from ourselves. It doesn't, if we wish hard enough and make just the right decisions at the right time, we can protect ourselves from evil. No, the victory comes through Jesus Christ and our Father in heaven. So just as Jesus teaches us to pray for our physical provision every day, give us our daily bread. Just as he tells us to ask for forgiveness that we will continually need, he also tells us to look to him for our protection for the future. It's so amazing, isn't it, that we we start with Christ and we start keenly with Christ. We say, Lord, you're all I need. We sing, you're all I've ever needed. All that kind of, you know, we we sing the songs. And we say that, you know, if we have you, Christ, and nothing else, then we have everything. And then we very quickly slip into independence from God. Well, Jesus is good, but then just to be sure, I've insured everything at home. You know, well, that will save me. from that will, that will protect me from evil. Having Christ is great, but in case he doesn't come through as he promised he would, or in case his definition of what I need is different to what my definition of what I need is, I've got my savings just to protect me. That will protect my future. And we look to human things to protect our future. I'm not saying insurance or savings are bad. I'm saying unbelief is. Unbelief, not trusting God, is the greatest sin anyone has ever committed. And if we have anything in our life that is sustaining that unbelief, we need to get rid of it quickly. So let's get into the habit again of regularly praying, God, deliver me, rescue me from evil, develop a total reliance on him and his protection, and stop trusting in man or in money or in ourselves. You know, while I was um, researching this, this talk and trying to explain it clearly, I was actually quite surprised of the lack of help commentators gave me. They generally seem just to link these two phrases together as if Jesus is just repeating himself. Well, deliver me from temptation and deliver me from evil. But I don't think Jesus was being flower in his language. It's not really his style. To me, these prayers are linked, but they are distinct. Firstly, God, keep me from the evil I want to do through temptations of life. Secondly, God, rescue me from the evil that is all around me. Lord, keep me safe from this evil world in which I'm an alien. Lord, keep me safe today and for eternity from the evil one. Lord, protect my physical family. Lord, protect my spiritual family from the evil intent of others. I love the fact that Jesus delivers this in in, in the plural. Deliver us from evil. We aren't just to pray for protection for ourselves, but all the members of Christ's body. Pray for our leaders who are often the, the first to be attacked when the enemy goes at it. Pray for new believers in the church. How often do we do that? How do we gather around them and just pray for God to protect them in what is a very fragile time? How often do we pray for those people who are on the fringe of church? God, protect them from the evil one. 1 Peter says that the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He devours the ones who are on their own on the edges. 
pray for them. Pray for the marriages in, you know, again, love, great to do. Pray for the marriages, especially in the church. Pray for the families. Such fundamental demonstrations of the gospel. The enemy loves to war against marriages. He loves to war against families. Pray for the relationships in this church and every church. The relationships, they're like the mortar that keeps the bricks together, that keeps the building together. We need to pray for them. They're a target for the enemy. You know, Jesus' intention with the Lord's Prayer was that we would use it as uh, a template to our own prayers. Not that we would just recite it endlessly like some Christians do, but that we would use it to base our prayer life around his prayers. And uh, one of the ways I've, in the past I've done this, and it's really blessed me, to use that as kind of titles for prayers. just helps you to keep praying when you struggle. It helps us to get the right words in the right motives and the right way. And uh, I was doing this for this prayer, and and, a... a seemingly contradictory prayer came about as I was praying into this subject. And that prayer was, God, make me susceptible to attack. Make me a target for evil, but then break evil's arm. Do you get it? So it's, it's not just, Lord, protect me from evil. It's, Lord, make me a target for the enemy. Make me such an agent of your kingdom that we are a threat to the enemy so that we need delivering from evil. Lord, save me from lukewarmness, from mediocrity, from lethargy, from a misprioritized life that makes me unthreatening to the enemy. The reality is that many, if not most of Christians, especially in the UK, are of absolutely no threat to the evil one. Do you realize that? They're they're no threat to him. In fact, he may even think they're doing him a favor, you know, because Sunday morning Christianity inoculates the world around them from realizing the real power of the gospel and the salvation that Jesus wants to offer. And so those kind of Christians may, may experience like a general evil around them, but they will never experience the targeted evil from a nervous enemy. So I'd rather pray, Lord, deliver me from the evil around me, but also as I choose the disciple's life, protect me from targeted evil that the enemy is doing against me. Because when we stand up for the gospel, we become a threat to the enemy. If we never stand up for the gospel, we are no threat to the enemy. He will not target us. He has limited resources. Unlike God, we're not a danger to him. But when we stand up for the gospel, when we begin to live it out and speak it out, when we become cities on a hill, when we become salt and light in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our peer group, then the enemy's target suddenly becomes on us. And then we can pray, God, protect me from that. So in a strange way, I'd I'd like to pray, Lord, make me a target and then deliver me from evil and the works of the evil one. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let me finish with one point. Because both these prayers will do something else to those who model their daily prayers on them. It will lift our eyes. Our human nature is to base our happiness on my daily circumstances. Have I had a good day? And that is my definition of life. Good day, bad day, good day, good day. Well, my daily happiness is based on that. But this prayer, in fact, the entire Lord's Prayer, is not just a model to help us survive this life. It isn't even just a great way to enjoy fellowship with the Father, although that is great. It is a glimpse of a time yet to come. And that's why Jesus gave it to us. It is a lifting of our gaze towards our promised inheritance. 
Because when you pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, we get to remind ourselves that one day that is where we will be with him in glory. Hope you do this when you pray. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we get to remind ourselves and find joy again when we realize one day we will fully enter that kingdom where God's rule is complete and where only his will exists. When we pray every day, God give us our daily bread, we should always be looking ahead to a time when we will eat from the tree of life and when there will be no more need, no more pain, no more hunger. When we pray, forgive us our debts or forgive us our sins, we can remember that there will be a moment after which we will never again for eternity need the forgiveness of God where all temptation to sin, all desire for darkness will be removed in his brilliance and his light. You know, when you pray each day, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In our minds, we should be lifting our gaze ahead to a time where there will be a temptation and sin-free existence. Where we'll never again fear the consequences of our mistakes. A place where evil and sin and pain and disease are not allowed in. You know, the Lord's Prayer is more than a, God, get me through one day. It is a glimpse of the glorious future that awaits those who trust in God today. It is the completion of all the desires of those who pray those things now. It's like the prayer for Paul for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1.18. He says, and I pray that the eyes of their heart, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you might know the hope to which he has called us, the riches of our glorious inheritance in the saints. That is what the Lord's prayer does to us really. It isn't just a recital of something where Jesus said, so I should do it. It is a, guys, look up. Look up. See what is yours in Christ Jesus. See life for how it really is. It isn't just a series of trials and tribulations. It is a, it's, it's a waiting for the glory to be revealed. And also, as lastly, as we pray those things, let our upward gaze focus on the one who first spoke those words. It's a fixing our eyes on Jesus, the one who made all these things possible. When you pray these prayers, not only will you look at the inheritance to come, you look at Christ who said those first words and who's no longer a man on the way to the cross, a king on his throne. Because it is through Jesus Christ we can even say our Father in heaven. It was through Jesus that God's kingdom came about and became a reality. It was through Jesus that we have, he, the Colossians says that he sustains our very existence. He gives us our daily bread. We look to Jesus through whom the forgiveness of sin was made possible by the shedding of his blood on the cross. We look to Jesus who was tempted in every way yet without sin so that he might be our perfect sacrificial lamb so he might atone for our sins. And it's through Jesus Christ that we have the final victory over the evil one, against death and against sin. That's what this prayer is all about. It's not just about picking apart and, you know, it's like a daily menu to try and get through the life. It is a lifting of our gaze to the things that are in Christ and is a lifting of our gaze to who we're having in heaven for us, that is Christ Jesus. In a moment, I'd love us all to stand and I want to pray through this prayer. For some of you, you may need to gaze on and believe in Jesus Christ for the first time. Use this prayer to do that. For the rest of us, maybe we need to hear the gospel again and hear the gospel in this prayer again. And as we do this, I just pray the Spirit 
will be at work. The Spirit will be there to renew us, to transform our hearts, as I spoke about. To lift our eyes when we struggle to lift our eyes. Let's stand. If it helps, you might want to raise your arms, raise your hands. If let's close our eyes, helps us focus on the right things and not other things. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this prayer. I thank you that you taught us not just how to pray, that sounds so religious in a way. You taught us how to enjoy fellowship with the Father. You taught us how to live a life not focused on sin or focused on temptation or even focused on just the things around us, but with our gaze lifted onto you. And this prayer was a guide and inspiration to help us do that. And just as I pray it through, Holy Spirit, would you be at work? None of these things are about us trying harder. It's about the Spirit at work in us. So we do pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Lord, it's so wonderful that we can call you Father. That your Son came and died so that we might know a new relationship after the relationship was destroyed by our sin. And you made a way to the Father for us. That one day we might join you in heaven, but even more, even now, we would be able to enjoy fellowship with you, even in this world. So we say, be glorified. Father, Son, and Spirit, be glorified through us. Be hallowed. Be lifted up. Be honoured through us, I pray. We do ask that your kingdom would come. Not just in an abstract form, but we pray your kingdom come through us. Through our words, through our deeds. Through the testimony of our lives. Through the testimony of your goodness to us. Would your kingdom advance? Would your kingdom of justice and peace and love and grace and mercy extend in our villages, in all villages, through this church, through all churches, through us individually and through us corporately? Would your kingdom come, we pray? Would your will be done by us, Lord Jesus? Help us to choose your way, your will, When it's hard, give us the strength through your spirit to do that. Where we struggle, particular areas of our life where we do struggle, Lord, help us, we pray. Father, we do ask for your daily bread. We ask for those who have particular physical needs or material needs here today. I pray that you would bring abundance, Lord. Abundance for their needs. Pray for those who are struggling financially. I pray that you would meet their daily need today. Those who are worried, those who are losing sleep, even today, may they trust in you and 
Find you to be a faithful God in it. Pray. Pray for our forgiveness, Lord. Lord, if, if we think that we are without sin, John says that we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But you are faithful and just. And when we confess our sins, you will cleanse us again and again. Pray for those who are harboring long, unforgiven sin or bitterness or anger towards others. Even as we remember through communion your death on the cross, we remember your forgiveness of sins for us and we ask for your forgiveness now. And we do pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Lord, change our hearts so they will not seek the apparent happiness that this world offers that is so false. It's so it's temporary at the very best, but it's apparent. It's like a, it's like a mirage in the desert. Something we're always going for and the greater happiness and it's never complete. We never get it because it's not there to be got. For those of us who have been chasing mirages, I pray that you would just show them that. Where we've been chasing the, the greater happiness that we think we're going to get from having more money or a bigger house or a bigger car or more friends or anything that is not of you, Lord. There is an apparent happiness compared to the joy that comes in you. And I pray for every person who knows they are struggling right now. Change their heart. And we do pray as well, Lord, deliver us from evil. From the evil that is all around us, but also the the evil that the enemy wants to inflict on your people who are standing up in your name. Let us be a church that regularly has to pray this because we feel the weight of the enemy's attack on us. And I pray for every person who has moved their protection to something else, something in of themselves, or something of man, or something in money, I pray that you would convict us of that unbelief and remind us again that our protection is in you alone, Lord Jesus. Everything else is just nothing compared to the way you want to protect us. And we do end, Lord Jesus, by saying that yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Take the praise. Take the praise, Lord Jesus. You are so, so, so worthy of it, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Do you want to take your seats? almost time for us to finish but as in all Sundays I just sometimes we have official what we might call ministry times Um, sometimes we don't but ministry is always available and um, I know John and to be honest any one of us really we would we would be very happy if there are particular things that God is impressed on your heart things that God is challenging you about I, I just want to encourage you it's not something like that we ourselves can deal with. But we know someone who can. And we know someone who wants to help you deal with these things. And we would love to pray with you and invite that person to come and just support you and encourage you and bless you and change you and transform you and do all those things. So we will close now.
Um, if you are able to come and join us for a picnic, that'd be great at half past 12. Um, as I look out, it's not that wet. But, um, but no, seriously, if, if, if there is ministry that you would really be blessed by, whether for healing, physical or spiritual, or just something that has challenged you or just the spirit has just poked you a little bit with, we would love to pray with you. It would be our privilege just to stand with you and to pray with you and support you in that. Um, but otherwise, it's time for us to go and get our kids. God bless you. It's great to gather. Thank you for joining us. Do stay around if you can. We will um, enjoy fellowship together.